1. I want to read, and um, if you guys follow along, uh, first 13 verses. Um, here we go. And we read it last week, but we'll read it here again. So it starts off, uh, Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And um, that sets the precedent for everything else that, that Mark goes on to tell us. And there's details surrounding that, specifically in these first 13, 13 verses, that we're going to really key in on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it goes right along with that song we sang earlier, you know, as we worship the Lord. You know, who do we say He is? Who do we say Jesus is? And Mark is clearly defining for us and declaring for us um, right at the beginning of this that He is the Son of God. This is what Mark believes. And as it is written, it says in verse 2, give evidences for this and to support this claim. It says, it is written as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those in Jerusalem went out to him, that's John, and this is John the Baptist, you guys can discern that, and they were all baptized by him, it says in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He was not your ordinary guy, right? He preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loosen. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens Parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Heavenly Father, as we start to go through this gospel that has been provided to us by your Holy Spirit through the writings of Mark, Lord, and as we talked about last week, as maybe told, perhaps probably told by the Apostle Peter, Lord, um, I pray you would use the Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, to convict us, uh, Lord, to maybe rebuke us if we need to be rebuked, to instruct us in the way of righteousness, Lord, to prepare us and Equip us for every good work. Lord, you tell us that you have appointed us unto good works. You've predestined us to them, that you've called us, Lord, to walk in them. And we know that your return is near, and we're excited and hopeful and expectant for that. And Lord, we want to be about your kingdom and not about our own, not about this world's um, ways of doing things, but yours. And Father, we already confessed, and we confess again that we need you. We can't do it apart from you. And Lord, so as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are today, Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, 
the groom. Lord, we pray that um, we would grow. We pray, God, that we would draw near to you and that you would have the whole of our heart and the whole of our mind. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in the introduction last week of this book, I pointed out that all of the Gospels have a differing main theme, right? We, we, we talked about that, and these differing main themes are designed to point us to a specific attribute of who Jesus is. And I mentioned last week that in John's Gospel, the main theme identifies the fact that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Mark declares this here, but John goes on to give example after example, example and words of Jesus to, to support this, that, that Jesus is the one who came down from heaven to save us from sin and from death. And then in the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew's main theme focuses on the fact that Jesus is the king of the Jews, the king of all kings, really, the, the one of the, 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 the rightful heir to the throne of David, that everlasting throne that was promised to David um, by God, that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then in Luke's gospel account, it points to the humanity of Jesus. The, the, the main theme is that Jesus was God in flesh, right, to the humanity of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus, is, who is fully God, is also fully human. He's like us in that way, but he's different than us because he is spotless. He is sinless. He is therefore, as a result, qualified to be the accepted sacrifice that was offered up for our sins. And then lastly, I pointed out as we look here to Mark's gospel that the main theme of Mark's gospel is dresses this fact that Jesus, who is the Son of God, is also the servant of God who came to serve us. And this theme is identified by a key verse, Mark chapter 10, we'll keep referring back to this, verse 45, which tells us, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now I point that out again as we now prepare to go through chapter one, because all throughout the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is our example, right? He came to show us a better way. He taught us a better way. And through his example, we're called, as you know, to forgive like he forgives. To sacrificially love like he has sacrificially loved us. And to pray like he has prayed. He's given us an example. And also, in the same way, as we look at him being a servant, sent to be a servant, serving us, we see that as an example, he's shown us how to serve others. To serve like he has served. And in, in fact, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, Jesus, he spoke to his disciples, and, and he, he said this, and we know that this was on the night that he was betrayed, there at the last Passover meal that he had with him, and we're told that he girded himself up, and he knelt down before each one of them, and he began to wash their feet. And when he was done, it says this, John accounts it, he says, do you know what I have done? To you, He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for I am. If I, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And, and of course, Jesus is speaking figuratively in that sense because it was the servant in the house who would wash the feet 
of, of, of those that, that came in. And, 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 and it was a humbling act. And Jesus says that I've done this because he says, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are we if we follow Jesus' example of being a servant. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to follow our Lord and Savior's example. And as followers of Jesus, it's clear that we too have been called to be servants of God, to serve one another, to serve those around us that he brings into our life for him. Therefore, the Gospel of Mark, which identifies Jesus as the servant of God who came to serve is the ideal, I think, gospel for us to study in order to see Jesus' example and to learn how to be a true servant of God. What does that look like for us in practical application? It's one thing to know it, but the blessing is in being the servant. But remember, Jesus said here to his disciples, it's not in knowing, but it is in serving. And so in verse 1, John begin, or Mark begins this gospel account and he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, every great story has a great beginning, right? Every great story has a great beginning. And as a matter of fact, lots of times when I read a book, I know this is not the, the normal way to do it, but um, I'll read a little bit of the beginning, then I'll go read the end. But every great story has a, a, a good beginning, and I love that about the Bible too, right? Go read the end. Right, We know how it, how it ends. It's, it's wonderful, but it has a great beginning. And this book, likewise, has a great beginning. And Mark takes us to the beginning of the gospel. And the ancient Greek word for gospel is this word, this Greek word called yoangelion. And it simply means good news, right? We've heard that before. The good news message of Jesus Christ. And so this, this book is exactly that. This account is a good news message about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he says. And it's the good news concerning Jesus, but also every word in Mark's description of Jesus is important. First, this is the good news of Jesus, and it's we see a genuine historical account of Jesus. And it's important. It's important. He's a historical person who walked the earth just like all the other men who have come before us. Except different, right? Furthermore, it's a good news message of the Christ. It's a good news message of Jesus, a person, a man, a human, God in the flesh. But it's the good news message of Christ, which simply means this, that he's the Messiah, right? It's not his last name, it's a title. The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior of men, and it's the good news of the message, he says, also here of the Son of God. And, and a son in more than a sense that we think of, 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 of all men really coming from God, because Jesus is the unique Son of God. Because he's also God the Son. He's the Son of God who is God the Son. In each one of the Gospel accounts, it'll give us, they give us this firsthand historical record of Jesus' life, specifically the things that he did in the things that he taught. And this good news account, this message bears the name of Mark, but like I pointed out, it appears that Mark was Peter's scribe, 
when Peter was in Rome. And from the collections of the teachings of Peter, Mark has conveyed this message to us today. And so in reality, this is Peter's testimony and witness of Jesus, what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. But even though Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who wrote these things down on Peter's behalf, we know that Mark traveled and lived in Jerusalem. And during Jesus' ministry, he, he, he also saw Jesus. He also heard the things that Jesus taught. He saw with his eyes and he heard with his ears. And so Mark, who had put his own faith in Jesus Christ, bears witness at the beginning of this gospel and makes this testimony, I think, in and of himself, saying the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And this statement is significant on many levels, but in light of the fact that this gospel account is pointing us to, who, to the fact that Jesus Christ is also a servant who served, this opening statement about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's profound. He's the Son of God who came to serve. God the Son who came to serve, to serve us. And it's something I think that we should stop and meditate on. Let's think about it. If a book was written about one of us, think about it for just a second, and it detailed the fact that we were the servants of God. Someone wrote a book about us. It, it, it probably would be interesting. I hope it would be interesting. Someone wrote about our life as servants of God. But I'll tell you this, it probably wouldn't be profound, would it? But the fact that Jesus is the Son of God who came to serve us and ultimately in doing so give His life as a ransom for us upon a cross, this is a profound thing. That God would come in human flesh to serve us. It's an amazing thing to think that God, as we refer to Him as the Almighty One, the Great I Am, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, all that we know Him to be, and then He humbled Himself, set aside glory to become a human so that He might serve you and me to give up his life for us is mind-blowing. In fact, I would bear to say that if we knew nothing, about, nothing else about this good news account, nothing else about Jesus Christ who is the Son of God, we would probably expect as we read on in Mark's Gospel account of how the people who encountered him bowed down before him, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son came to men and in all of creation bowed down before Him and all of creation served Him while He was here, right? If that's all we knew, that's maybe what we would expect to read. Because this is what it's like in our world, is it not? When there's a king, when there's a lord, when there's a ruler, when there's a master, when there's a person of great power and authority, they're the one who is to be served. They're the ones who are served. But we know, as we know, as Jesus spoke to his disciples over and over and over again, the kingdom of God is not like man's kingdom, is it? Not in any way. And one of the main differences, one of the primary differences of, of God's kingdom is that the one who is exalted is the one who serves with humility. The one who who is exalted. And we know this as Jesus, we're told, is greatly exalted because He humbled Himself and served. And this is what Jesus taught throughout all of His ministry. And in Mark chapter 9, verses 30, 
3 and 35, you can, through 35, you can look there. It tells us, it says, it says here's one of these instances with Jesus' disciples where Jesus used it as a learning opportunity to teach about the kingdom of God. And it says, when Jesus came to Capernaum and when Jesus was in the house, he asked his disciples, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? Now, Jesus already knew, right? But they knew he knew, and so it says they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves about who would be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve to him and he said this. He said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. And so Mark here, he opens up by pointing out the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But in doing so, his witness and his testimony of this radical statement we see is only one. Mark makes this statement. It's one testimony, one witness. And this is important to note because according to the Jewish law, we know that at the the testimony of one that speaks to the truth of something, that it must be established by the witness of two or three. Remember, Mark's a Jew. Peter, who, who, who who spoke and Mark was the scribe we know that he was a jew too so there's this jewish mindset even in this writing and this is exactly what mark is doing for us in these verses as he follows the testimony of 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 two and three more the prophets the witness of john the baptist and ultimately the very voice of god the father why does he account these to establish the truth of this statement to bear witness to bear testimony to the fact that jesus is the Son of God. Mark's saying, just don't take my word for it. Listen to this. And so in verse 2, he goes on to quote from the Old Testament. And he says, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make path his, make his, his path straight. And so the first witness that, if you will, is called to the stand by Mark to testify the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, along with Mark's own testimony, is the prophets. Specifically, you know, if you, if you study this out, two prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, is who Mark quotes here. Malachi chapter 5, verse 2, in the first part, and then Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, is where you can look back to see the prophets speaking in this way. And both of these prophecies are what we are to refer to as messianic prophecies. They, they foretell of the coming of the Messiah. And they foretell of the messenger who would come specifically to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John the Baptist was this voice, Mark says. The one who was crying in the wilderness. Who at this time everybody was well aware of who John the Baptist was was we know they know they knew what he did who he came to prepare the way for he was the voice crying in the wilderness the one sent to prepare the way for the lord jesus spoke about him jesus knew him and i think it's important to to point out that these prophecies if you want a record of them all they are only two of more than 330 specific old testament prophecies that are directly tied to the coming of the messiah 330 And, and, and more importantly, in that these prophecies, they, they foretell of things like this, when the Messiah would be born. That was prophesied, when. When he would be born. 
It was prophesied about where the Messiah would be born. It was prophesied about to whom the Messiah would be born, what the Messiah would do, how the Messiah would be killed, and even how the Messiah would be resurrected back to life. And when these prophecies are studied in total, it's clear that there is only one person in all of history who has perfectly fulfilled all of them. Only one. Therefore, that only person we know can be the Christ. The only person that can be the Messiah is this person, Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God. And He was sent by God at a specific time in perfect fulfillment of every one of the Old Testament prophecies. And that's what Mark is directing his audience to consider. The prophets spoke of Him. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 4-5, through it clearly declares this in another way by saying this, but when the fullness of time had come, when the appointed time, when the right time, when the time that God had set forth, the fullness of time had come, God Himself sent forth His Son. It says, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so Jesus, He's literally the expected one. Mark talks about. And it's cool because we today are looking expectantly for his return again. And assuredly as he has come before, he is coming again in fulfillment of prophecy that tells us so. In in fulfillment of the words that Jesus spoke himself. And he's the expected one who was foretold of by the prophets. And John the Baptist who was called by God, we know that Mark is saying he's the one who was sent. He's the messenger. He's the one that the Bible spoke about in conjunction to the Messiah to prepare the way. And according to what we read here in verses 2 and 3, the point of John's ministry, right, as, as, as being the one, the messenger of God, it was to prepare the way of the Lord. Specifically, how? In making his path straight. And other translations will put that by making his path level. I think that's probably a little more accurate in regards to the word picture here. A level or a straight path. And this illustration gives us a picture of like someone filling the holes and knocking down hills that are in the way. Yet the idea of, the, of, of, of this preparation of the way of the Lord by making a, strat, a straight or a level path, being that it's a clear word picture, it reveals that... Um, in a, in a spiritual sense, that, that, that the real preparation goes on is in the heart. It must take place in our heart. And in doing so, it, it's similar to the way that maybe a road is, 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 is built or constructed. First of all, they're both expensive. They must deal with many different problems and environments, and, the, and, and ultimately it takes an expert engineer to prepare the way. And in verses 4 through 8, we're told about this messenger. We're given a little bit of information about him. Mark doesn't go into great detail. He doesn't in really in anything throughout this whole gospel account. But, but we're told about John the Baptist who was sent to prepare the way. And it says that John came baptizing, we know, in the wilderness, the Judean wilderness. He was preaching a message. The message was a message of baptism for the repentance of sin. We know in verse 5 that all of Judea and from Jerusalem, that people from all over heard about him. And John, Mark says, it came to him to be baptized in the Jordan River. They confessed their sins. And, and we're told that John was a weird dude. And you can read more about that. He was a prophet, a mighty prophet. He had, he had camel hair clothes and a leather belt. 
You can vision that in your own mind. He, he ate tasty things, locusts and wild honey. And he preached this message about the coming of the Messiah, one greater than him, one mightier than him. His sandal strap, he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loose. And so John says, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He told the way. He prepared the way. And when we consider John the Baptist to be God's messenger, we see that he's significant, guys, in, in, in a few ways. And the first is because John was the first, the first authentic prophet to voice, um, to be a, a prophetic voice to Israel. In, 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 the, in the history of Israel for nearly 300 years, there was a 300-year period of silence where there was no word from God. He was silent until now, with the exception, I know you guys are a lot of Bible scholars, but what about Anna, what about Simeon? I get that, but, but not, not in the sense that John was the one. And there were some at this time, it was significant, that thought that God had stopped sending prophets. There's a great mourning across the land because the, the, the Hebrew people believed that the scepter had, had left from the tribe of Judah and that they were condemned. And, and you can go and study out that for yourself and you can look some of those things up. I don't have time to get it in this morning. But this, this message from, from God was a message of hope, a message that brought forth an anticipation of deliverance. There was excitement from this, that God hadn't forsaken us, that the Messiah was coming, and people were responding. And so John shows us this case that there was hope for the nation of Israel, that God had kept his promises to them in spite of themselves. And ultimately, John was significant for what he did as the messenger and, 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 and for what John was sent to do in this ministry of John. When we see it, it was a twofold ministry of John the Baptist. To begin with, we see that it was a ministry of baptism, we're told, unto repentance, right? And in doing so, John was actually offering a, a ceremonial washing that confessed sin, and it did something. The, it was an action behind it to demonstrate the, the repentance that people were offering up in preparing themselves for the coming of the Messiah. And baptism was already practiced in the Jewish community in the form of ceremonial um, uh, washings, but not necessarily immersions. The ones who were immersed in, in the form of baptism was for Gentile converts. You know, Jews were into the sprinkling and the water running down, and there were certain purifications that would come as that. But they took Gentiles because they saw them to be filthy dogs, and they, they put them all the way under, maybe twice, I don't know. And so for a Jew in John's day to submit to this kind of immersion baptism was, 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 a, was an important thing because John was calling them to confess this kind of a statement that I'm as far away from God as a Gentile and I need to get right with him because he's, he's coming. And this was needed in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah because at this time, I talked about it, the nation of Israel was far away from God. Even when you read through this first chapter, it's like, man, there's a lot of demon-possessed Hebrew people in this time. Why is that? Even in the synagogue, right? Just hanging out there. Like, it's no big deal. Oh, yeah, here's our demon-possessed guy. 
They were filled, and that was because they were filled with self-righteousness. They were filled with pride. You see, they had come out of the Babylonian captivity, and they had purposed in their heart at that time to keep the laws of God. They had right intentions. They knew that they had not kept the laws of God, the commands of God, and that they had been displaced from the land as a result of that. And so for 400 years before Jesus' arrival, they had been trying to do this, to perfect their religion, trying to become acceptable in their eyes of God, in the eyes of their God, by keeping a set of rules and set of regulations. In fact, they were so zealous, they were so passionate about this that they had their own collection of laws, rabbinical oral traditions that were written down, laws to help keep laws, a book called the Talmud. And Talmud today, you can still read it, and depending on which one you go to, you, there's English conversions, and, and, and um, anyway, they consist of two different writings, one called the Mishnah and the other called the Gurma, or Gemara, excuse me. And these writings are what taught a person from man's perspective, literally, God was not in this, but from man's perspective, it taught a Hebrew person how to keep the laws of God. And in total, there are 73 volumes of rules that instruct a person on how to keep the rules. 73 volumes of rules teaching the Jewish people on how to keep the rules. But the the problem with this is that the Jews missed the point of the law, right? We know this. As it was never intended, the law was never intended to make one righteous, to bring them in right standing with God. Rather, the law was given to show a person that they were a sinner and that they were in need of the Savior. Romans chapter 3, Apostle Paul writes and he tells us, he says, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purposes to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world that they are guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And so John preached a message of repentance to the self-righteous and prideful nation at this time that thought they had it all together. And John says, no, not even close. The Messiah is coming and you need to repent. Calling the self-righteous nation of Israel to confess their their sins. Calling them to recognize again their need for a Savior. But we need to understand that John's message wasn't, you're a sinner, you need to repent. John's main message was, the Messiah is coming. And I think that's still so relevant to today. The message isn't to this world, you're sinners and you need to repent. Is that true? The main message is, the Messiah is is coming, and you need to be right with him. And so the call to repentance was the response to the good news that the Messiah was coming. If the Messiah is coming, you should do something about it. The call to repentance was the response to the news that the Messiah was coming, and, and, and um, this points us to the second part of John's ministry. What was the second part of John's ministry? It was to identify who this Savior was. Yeah, he's not here yet, but he's coming. John didn't know who he was until he saw him. God told him what to be looking for. And then once he came, John said, this is him. He was called to magnify and point people to the Son of God, the one who was mightier than him, who was to come after him. And, 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 and because this is what John did, or Mark uses him in this sense as our next witness. You guys know, he says, John said it was Jesus. 
the one who had been sent in fulfillment to prophecy to prepare the way for the Messiah. John himself said that he is the Son of God, that this is the one who is mightier than I. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 32-34, through we have a more detailed testimony of John the Baptist's witness. And in this passage it says this, but John bore witness saying this, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon, upon him. I did not know him, he said, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine John the Baptist in this sense? He's got a mission. He's got a call. He's got a ministry. And he's out in the wilderness. And he's dressed like nobody else. And he's calling you self-righteous Hebrew people to come and to be baptized. Treating them in one sense just like a Gentile saying, you guys are so far away from God, I'm dunking you just like you're dunking these Gentiles. And every time one would come out of the water, do you, what do you think John was doing? Is the Holy Spirit coming down? Is this the one? Is this the one? That's what I would be doing. I would be in, he's, he wanted to see the Messiah himself. Is this the one? And I can imagine that day when this took place, how much joy filled John's heart. This is the one. And coming back to the Gospel of Mark, we pick back up in verse 9 and we're directed to this, actually the fourth witness and part of this testimony that John the Baptist was witness to and others at this time and, and to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And it says, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, the one right of Galilee, and he was baptized with John in the Jordan and immediately coming up from the water. He, speaking of John, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In light of this, there's only one conclusion. We should conclude this, that there is no greater witness as Mark wraps this up with the witness of God. There's no greater witness of God the Father who could testify to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And certainly it's a Father who knows His Son. And when Jesus came up out of the water, it says the Holy Spirit descended on Him and God the Father spoke and God the Father said, This is my Son. And Jesus being the Son of God means that He's divine in nature. So what does that mean? Just like a horse gives birth to a horse and a human gives birth to a human, it was God, we know, who caused the Virgin Mary to conceive and to give birth through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon Mary. We know. You can go and read about it. And in this scene... And we see here in Mark, we see this, tri, this triune God being revealed. A picture of the Trinity as God the Father speaks and God the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. And, and, and Jesus, the Son who came up or came down from heaven, here now before all in human flesh, is standing in the Jordan River. And what, he's, what is He doing? He's ready to serve us. He's ready to save us. Now think about that in light of what's going on here. We know a lot about Jesus. One of the things that we know more so than anything else is that he was sinless, right? And yet John's preaching a message of baptism for the repentance of sin. I don't know about you, but it's like, why, why did Jesus 
submit himself to this baptism. And it seems like an odd thing since he was sinless. But when we think about baptism, the picture of what it is and what it entails, and we remember that our baptism, our own baptism as Christians, according to Romans chapter 6, is an issue of identification, right? We are, through our baptism, identifying specifically, it says in Romans chapter 6, with Jesus' death and resurrection. There's a lot more surrounding that, and you can go read about that in Romans chapter 6. But in light of this, we see that Jesus was baptized, and it was him as the Son of God also seeking to identify, but to identify with us. He was seeking to identify himself with us. And now, now when I think about that, that's still a mind-blowing thing because I can spend hours up here this morning giving you reason after reason for why it's a desirable thing to want to be identified with Jesus. Here's my Lord. Here's my Savior. Here's my friend. I'm with him. Lots and lots of good reasons for that. But when I think about why Jesus would want to identify with us, um, it's kind of mind-blowing. And I can only really come up with one good reason for why Jesus, the Son of God, would want to come and identify with us, with sinful men and sinful women. And it's because of this. He loves us. He unconditionally loves us, period. And the fact of the matter is that God loves us so much that he came to the earth. He took on human flesh in order to identify with us, to connect with us, to relate with us on a personal level, an intimate level, and to demonstrate to us just how much he loves us by dying for us our sins. Listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-10, through 10, right? It says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the payment for our sins. And so in verses 12, we read about the ministry of Jesus having established Him as the Son of God, and now we see what He does. And immediately the servant, or excuse me, the the, the servant, yeah, the servant was driven out, but by the Spirit. The Spirit drove Him, Jesus, into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness for 40 days, He was tempted by Satan, and He was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Again, this, this, this is an unusual way of, of like the next thing to tell us. You know, we, we do a young adult study at our house on 5.30 on Sundays, and it's, it's going on again tonight, guys. You're all welcome, young adults. But one of the things, I think my wife said this about Mark. She said, it's like he's got ADD. It's like he can't stay on track. He's like here and he's there. And it's like, Mark, where are you going? What's going on? And, and it's like it's hard to connect the thread of thoughts, perhaps, as we see Jesus busy being the servant of God. And, and we know that he didn't go to the wilderness on his own. Mark's saying he was baptized. And immediately the Holy Spirit drove him 
into the wilderness. And this is the key. And this account of, 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 of the tempting of Jesus is spoken in greater detail in other Gospels. And Mark just kind of crams it all together. But it's mentioned here briefly to point out that it was the Holy Spirit. That's the significant thing for us to take note of this morning. It was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness where he was then tempted by Satan before he began his ministry as the servant of God to us. He was alone in the wilderness. Now the word tempted is the same word for tested in the, in the, in the Greek. It, it interchange, interchanges perfectly. Tested and tempted. And the idea here is that, is that when Satan is tempting with the hope of evil, God is testing with the intention of good. It speaks about that in the book of James. And that's true in our own lives. When we feel like we're being tempted by Satan, it's true, but we can also see it as a time of testing uh, of God. And, and, and so we think about that. Satan was tempting Jesus, but God was testing Jesus and, and, and with the intention of good. And God wasn't testing Jesus to prove something to himself. Okay, is this really my son? Is he really going to be the qualified one? No, God knew, Right? But somebody didn't know, and who was that somebody? And that somebody was us. God wanted us to know that His Son was divine, perfect in every way, and God is testing Him, improving for us. And this testing of Jesus was a demonstration of how Jesus is like us in that He too was tempted in every way that we are, but that He is different than us in that He is perfectly able to resist all, all temptations and never entered into sin. And, and this fact is, is intended to be not only a, an, an establishment of, of the divinity of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, but it's also intended to come into our lives and offer us comfort today. Comfort us in our own times of weakness to give us this confidence, the Bible says, to approach God through Jesus, His Son, and receive, the Bible says, the grace and mercy that we need because we know this, that, that Jesus understands what we're going through. He can relate to us. He came to relate to us. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15-16, through 16, of course, it's pointed out to us in this one, the author of Hebrews writes and says very clearly, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. But was, and that's a good, by the way, that's a, that's a message for us this morning. Who here is a sinner? Who here is tempted? Who here fails all the time? Guys, quit going, I'm not saying you are, but don't go around like we're not. God's given us to one another so that we can sympathize with one another's weakness. Well, brother, I don't know what it's like to be in that spot and do what you just did, but... <laughs> Come on, we have an example. He was tempted. He was without sin, but he knows what that's like so that he could sympathize with our weakness. We are called to sympathize with each other's weaknesses, to bear one another's burdens. He says, we're tempted in all ways that we are without sin, yet without sin. Therefore, he says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now, if we... Look back over these verses. We're just about done. 
If we look back over these verses, let's take this and look at the application into our lives and string this thread through and how it reaches into today. Is Because when we look at these, I think there's things, these verses, there's several things that we can identify with. Things we need to identify with as we look to Jesus as our example for what it means to be a servant of God. The first thing to point out is that like Jesus' life was foretold of, prophetically so too has our lives been foretold of prophetically what do i mean well ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this for we for you for me for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works for for which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them foretold of prophetically in regards to the good works in other words god has a perfect plan for our life god's got a perfect plan for your life that he's prepared a plan that was prepared for us before we were even born and as servants of god all we have to do is just plug into his plan for our life The second example that Jesus gives for us that Mark lays out here in the text is the fact that Jesus came as a servant of God to identify with us. He was foretold of prophetically. There was a plan, God's divine plan for his life. There's a divine, God-given plan for our life. But likewise, as we see here with Christ, that he came to identify with us, we too must seek to be identified with Christ. He came to seek to identify with us, and we're called to seek to identify with him. And and this is to happen as servants, both in word and in deed, by the words that we speak and by the things that we do. Meaning this, do the people that we come in contact with, do they know that we are a Christian? Do they know that you identify with Christ? Can they tell that we're a Christian by the way that we live and the words that we speak? Or are we trying to somehow mingle this world together with this new life that we have within Christ and and still find some kind of identity in this world? Do we still seek to identify with this world and blend into the world? Maybe it's because we're embarrassed. Maybe it's because we're ashamed to identify with Jesus. Maybe there's other reasons. I don't know. But we're called to forsake this world and the things of this world and to be baptized, to be, find ourselves you know, dead to this world and alive in Christ. Who are we identifying with? Christ came to identify with us and we are called to identify with him. And in Matthew chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, um, Mike and Aaron, if you guys want to come back up, we're going to wrap it up with this. It says, whoever desires to come after me Right? Whoever desires to identify with me, to follow me, to claim me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake, the good news message, he will save it. And he says this, what is it going to profit a man? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? And we're not trying to gain the whole world. Sometimes we're identifying with the world. We just want a little piece of it. I just want a little bit. 
And, and God says, God says, Jesus says, what does it matter if you gain all of it and still yet lose your own soul? It's not going to be worth it. He says, or what will man give in exchange for a soul? He says, soul, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and in my words, the things I teach, of me and the things that I teach, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Who are we seeking to identify with? The third thing exampled for us is Jesus' anointing, this last little tag on to what we're reading here where the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness and where he was tempted. And we see that, that, that Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's an example for us. This is before he went into his ministry. This is what took place. Jesus being God, he had everything he needed to do, everything he needed to be able to do the work of a servant of God, but yet nevertheless, we see the Holy Spirit descending upon him and anointing him. Why? Because it's an example. It's an example for us to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We just spent four weeks, not too long ago, talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the need of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if we're called to be the servants of God, to do the work as a servant of God, just like Jesus' example for us, we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to be empowered why? Because the first and foremost thing that is a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, no matter what it is, because first it's the indwelling, we know that it's the fruit of the Spirit. We have to be different like Jesus was different, and that comes through the Holy Spirit. And then the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, is then manifested in our lives. Without the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our lives, we're left to the works of the flesh, and there's nobody that wants that from us. But yet, what God gives us is, according to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, is love. That's an awesome thing. And as a result of that, there's joy. You think, you think the world wants to come to people who aren't full of joy? You know, Jesus wasn't a downer. Jesus was, he, he loved to party. He's going to parties all the time, hanging out with people so much that they make these weird accusations about him hanging out with sinners and being a drunkard and a wine bibber and all these other things, you know? And, 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 and even Jesus' disciples are condemned by the Pharisees on why aren't they fasting? Why aren't they mourning? He's all, because I'm here, he says. Jesus was full of joy. We have reason to have great joy, to live like those who are full of joy. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those things are attractive to those around us. And all of these things are needed as we close this morning. All of these things are needed in order to be the servant of God. And that's what is exampled for us. That Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He sought to identify with us. He just didn't stand afar off. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that you would um, I pray you would bless us today. You have blessed us. You do continue to bless us. I pray you would bless us today, Lord, as we see um, the blessing, the benefit, the rewards of, of being of your kingdom, of being your, 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 your sons and your daughters. Lord, those who are sold out wholeheartedly for you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, God the Son, who came to serve us. 
We're grateful, God, that we know you in this way. We spent many years, many of us, Lord, denying that truth and running from you, and now we run to you. Lord, have your will and your way with our life. In Jesus' name we pray.